Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 44. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Joel Grind, mastermind of the thrash-tastic crossover band Toxic Holocaust. Believe it or not, Toxic Holocaust is celebrating their 20th anniversary this year, and Joel has prepped a brand new album for the occasion. It's called Primal Future 2019. It is the first Toxic Holocaust record in six years, and their first ever for E1. And it takes the toxic concept all the way back to the beginning, with Joel doing all of the vocals, guitar, bass, and drums, and engineering the record. He's also an engineer and producer himself. Speaking of his engineering and producing work, not only is Joel a massive fan of bands like Metallica and Megadeth, but a couple of years ago, as a total labor of love, he chopped down the most recent records from those two big four bands and posted them up on YouTube. Dubbed the Grind It Down edition, his version of the Hardwired double album whittled the record to just 23 minutes and 33 seconds. I believe that's shorter than Rain and Blood. It wasn't because he thought the record was bad. It was more of a fun project to see what it would sound like if you stripped away everything but the thrashiest, most aggressive elements. It takes a true fan of Metallica to even contemplate something like that, and knowing that he did it in the spirit of love and affection for the band, I absolutely had to have him on this podcast. This is a super fun conversation, and in fact, I look forward to having him on again on a future episode of Speak and Destroy, because there's still so much left untapped. So here it is, my conversation with Joel Grind of Toxic Holocaust. This is Speak and Destroy. occurred to me literally as I was texting you I was like wait um Joel's Joel's the guy who did that like edited down hardwired yeah <laughs> like, uh, so yep. <laughs> uh if, if you were up for it you'd be a perfect guest um oh absolutely I'd love to so yeah, I got a copyright strike on that or that would still be up on YouTube but <laughs> oh that sucks right strike for that doing that but you know, I didn't monetize it. It just, I guess they didn't like that it was edited or something. I don't know. I'm know, sure it wasn't them. You know, sure I was, was going to say, label, I, but... I doubt it was them. It was probably, uh, you know, the, the copyright. They just have those songs. algorithms that can tell exactly. it's the same song and all that. So Exactly. Yeah, it's all very automated. A lot of the, the takedown notices and stuff like that. In fact, the, the only way to really get around that is if it's, if you can get it whitelisted by the copyright holders. Interesting. Having to be a little bit of a nerd about this this part of things. That's cool to know. Yeah. So it just kind of like ignores that when it does the search or whatever. Like Exactly. It's probably about three or four years ago. There were two kids in the UK who remade St. Anger with listenable production value. I sort of, I don't think I ever heard it, but I sort of remember hearing about something like that where they changed the snare and all that stuff where it wasn't like, that crazy pingy snare and everything. and It was one kid who's a multi-instrumentalist like yourself, and he 
re-recorded the record from top to bottom. Uh, That's he, incredible. He did the drums. He did rhythm guitar. He actually put uh, some solos in there. And, uh, Damn. Then he, and then he has a friend who sounds like James Hetfield that he had come sing on it. And the, the thing that he did on YouTube is really cool because it's basically a four-way split screen for the entire record. Oh, shit. So it's him recording each part. Yeah, and it has him in different outfits. Like, I'm the bass player right here. <laughs> oh, man. That's really cool. Yeah, it's great. And somewhere along the lines, I don't know what the exact story is. Uh, I'm actually gonna, I've actually been in touch with, with the kid about having him on. Somewhere along there, Q Prime got wind of it and sort you know, approved its existence. So oh, that's it's been pretty able cool. to stay on YouTube. Yeah, and obviously, like, especially because it's like it, but... changing the record. You know, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome that they were okay with that. You know, because a lot of people don't like when you alter the content. Yeah. Especially, you know, because it's like taking, creative license to their <laughs> source material you know so that's pretty awesome man and for people listening who who wouldn't maybe understand this uh oftentimes that's what makes covering a song more complicated because you can you know the rules are basically anyone can cover any song and put it out uh, as long as you're paying royalties to exactly. the songwriters but when you start altering a song in your cover version if you change any exactly. of the lyrics or if you make a medley or something like that then it gets really complicated about whether or not they give you permission and how much they want to charge like you. lee hazelwood with megadeth and stuff exactly doing these boots and stuff where it's like they changed the lyrics and then he was like however many years later like 25 years later then he decided he wasn't cool with it anymore <laughs> yeah it's kind of like the uh weird owls thing about coolio where he's like yeah coolio yeah. hates amish paradise but somehow he cashes the check yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. I, I don't know if you, I'm sure you probably had the 2001 or two reissue of Killing Is My Business. Yeah, with the beeps. Yeah. It's like beeped out. And, that, and that, <laughs> that release was so killer because it sounded so much better, you know, remixed and remastered. But, and, but then that song, I just, I had to delete I it. it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, they finally, on this most recent reissue, reverted back to a listenable version of oh, that cool. cover. I yeah. actually just ordered that. So that's, that's cool. I haven't listened to it yet. I was wondering if it would be beeped out because that one sounds really good too. So I'm like, it's funny. That's, that's gotta be the only record I know of that has been, you know, mixed three times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. And, and worth it every time. I mean, once, you know, there's, there for, I mean, Megadeth uh, being a great example specifically that sort of, remix remastered campaign around like 2005 2006 i didn't really dig any of those yeah but the no man no you know that remix of of uh rust in peace it's like why why touch that record that record sounded so good it's like i don't get it like i don't get why they would do that you know but yeah and i think they redid the gang vocals in some spots because they couldn't find yeah. the tracks and those sound weird and, and yeah. the bass sounds way different like the tone like whatever song that is uh Take New Prisoners, maybe? Yeah, or uh, It's Dawn, like that, Dawn it Patrol. does the bass solo, and like the bass tone sounds so bad. Yeah, I don't the know. original sounded great. Well, I, yeah, don't, I don't know why they would change that one. Yeah, the drums sounded really thin on all those yep, remixes. like the sample, like the triggered uh, snare sounds like a piccolo snare instead of like whatever snare Nick Menza was using. It's like, why? I, it's like, it sounds worse. And a lot, <laughs> like less, you know, yeah. a lot less aggressive sounding. It's pretty... Uh, pretty tame in comparison so whereas killing is my business one of the first you know thrash records that i ever loved as a kid that yeah that is a rare example of a remix remaster where i exclusively listened to the quote-unquote better version ever right. since it yeah, was yeah because the, the original mix was pretty rough so 
Yeah. It's it's cool to hear, you know, spending all your money on drugs instead of mixing. I guess I'll do that. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know what really changed for me about both the that first reissue of Killing Is My Business and then also someone played me the like surround sound or whatever version of Peace Cells that came out around mm-hmm. like, maybe a couple of years after that. Those two records really opened up my mind to Gar Samuelson. You know, I'd oh, always, he's such a good drummer, yeah. Right, I'd always appreciated him, but hearing, actually really hearing him in the mix in those two, like you're like, oh, this is the praying yeah. mantis jazz stuff that everyone's talking about. I can hear totally, it Totally, because a lot of those like ghost notes and stuff get lost with the other mixes, but yeah. you can actually hear the nuance and stuff. It's pretty cool. Yeah, so let's go back to, I like to do this with pretty much everyone in this sure. more sort of podcast format. Uh, what were your earliest musical experiences and discoveries? Like, did you have, uh, you know, family members that played stuff around the house? Like, when do you first remember having that moment of like, oh, this is going to be a thing for me? My family in general, like my my mom and dad and stuff, they they were super into it. And I remember like even being really young and just hearing like, well, not even like I was so young that I don't even remember hearing it, but I remember seeing like the album covers and stuff. The kind of things like that just stuck out to me. Like I would see like Kiss records and you know stuff like just stuff that you know really catches your eye as a kid, like just the artwork and stuff and Thin Lizzy. And I remember seeing Jailbreak and you know stuff like that. And but when I got a little older, got more aware of like music and stuff. Like my mom would listen to like ACDC and Thin Lizzy and Black Sabbath and kiss and you know stuff like that and then a little bit later you know more like guns and roses and things like that and um that's what really kind of was like oh wow you know like this you know this is beyond like me just liking it you know i was like really like interested like i would like pour over like the liner notes and you know just nerdy stuff you know where i was like I, this is actually something i really am into more than just casual listening and then getting older you know just with my own friends and stuff um i used to be really into skateboarding and i had a you know it, I, I don't have any brothers or sisters but my friend's older brother you know we would go to like the half pipe in his backyard and he'd be listening to stuff like which i later found out was like dri and and stuff, but I didn't know at the time, but I just really liked it. It was like heavier than what I was used to, things like that. And, uh, he actually made me a mixtape and there was stuff like DRI, Megadeth, Nuclear Assault, stuff like that. And that's kind of when it really became a thing for me where I was like this, you know, uh, you know, Metallica, Megadeth, DRI, you know, all that kind of stuff was like, I, this is my, my kind of music, you know? Yeah. And, uh, that's that was that was probably maybe 91 something like that and that's that's really when that stuff really took hold and uh you know i started around that time well maybe fast forward maybe a couple years uh i got a drum set and that was what i started with i started playing drums and mm. you know just playing with uh different kids in my class that that you know I, I knew a kid that played guitar we would jam and stuff at my house and it just you know it just you know how the how stuff like that goes it just starts to steamroll kind of and then the ball kept rolling and you know then i decided you know i want to start making my own music like this like at the time we didn't really know how to make music you know like especially the stuff that we liked we didn't know how to make it so mm-hmm. we were kind of just jamming but, you know, as I got older and got better at, at playing music, that was when, 
you know, I started more moving towards the direction of Toxic Holocaust. Played in a few like more punk bands at the time before that, but when I finally realized my vision, it was like the early stages of Toxic Holocaust, which w- I would say would be 97, 98. Wasn't called Toxic at the time, but it was like going in that direction. And that was just jamming with a group of friends. And um, eventually, you know, around 99, uh, early 99 is when really like the idea for Toxic Holocaust came about. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of, it's weird to think about, like, cause that's, it, that was 20 years ago now, but, um, right. <laughs> that's, yeah, it's not to the 20th anniversary of toxic cause the first demo came out in 99 and, and that's, that was kind of, you know, bands like Venom and, and nuclear assault and stuff like on the first demo, there was a Venom cover as a nuclear assault cover. And that was like kind of the direction I was going in at the time. It's funny how things like thinking back on, I never really think about the early days, but that's funny how it's kind of like, you can just, it just starts to build and. Yeah. And that, know. that through line from, you know, when you talk about, you know, an early mixtape and getting into things like nuclear assault and DRI and Megadeth, yeah. and like how those are such key ingredients to what toxic does, not just musically, but aesthetically and, you know, everything for the yeah. excellent job you've done with imagery and, and vibe with the whole concept of, around it, um, I think really it takes what, you know, someone like Nuclear Assault in particular was doing and amplifies it. And in, in my mind, and this is pr- sacrilege, I'm sure, to a lot of people, I think it's improved upon it because it's, Thanks, it's given it like a different energy and a different sort of life. That it, it's more It's more what some of those bands, it's more like what I wanted them to be or how I thought of them right. than how they actually were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, if yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. What I uh, kind of, what I tried to do was sort of like, I never wanted to be a clone of a specific band. I saw a lot of that, especially when, you know, the thrash quote unquote thrash revival came back, you know, some of them were like named specifically. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Specifically like going after Like we're trying to be Exodus or we're trying to be this band. And I never wanted to do that, you know, like, cause I always felt like that was kind of like, like parody almost to what yeah. you know like it's not like it's like you I get, I get that they like the band and i get that they like the music but it's like it's almost like not really like forming your own it's like it's like cosplay sound it reminds you know? me it reminds me of comic-con you know it's like exactly yeah you're doing cosplay version of yeah the we're the band. avengers it's like, and it's like yeah but that's that already exists <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so it's like for me like and then i combined that with like because around that same time, too, when I was, like, getting into that stuff, you know, when – so basically when I first was able to drive and, and things like that, because where I grew up was kind of like a rural area. They didn't really have a music scene, didn't really have – and that's a big reason why Toxic was a solo project to, to mm. begin with, too, was because I couldn't find other people into that kind of music, you know, to yeah. play with. So that was a big reason, too. But also, like, when I started to be able to drive, I was able to go to, like, Philadelphia. I was able to go to Baltimore, you know, New York, and go to record stores that actually had cool records and underground records. And that's kind of when I discovered, like, punk stuff, like, underground punk stuff, like like that band Nausea and, like, things like that. Like, yeah. like a lot of those bands were, like, Os Rotten and things where I was, like, discovering this t- stuff, too. And that is another factor of what I try to incorporate with toxic too. It's like, it's, it is like thrash metal metal stuff, but it's like, there's a punk element to it also. 
And that's kind of like what formed, you know, uh, it's like a weird mishmash. I, th- I think bands that like nobody's like truly original. I think mm-hmm. bands that do stuff that are original, just they put the the things in the blender the right way where the, it just comes out original where they don't steal like a ton from one area they they steal from a bunch of different areas you know it's like then you form your own sound that way i should i should point out to anyone listening that we've never spoken before so people that have heard me pontificate <laughs> I've, I've, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've said what you just said on just about every episode of speaking to Stroy and all sorts of other interview settings because i completely agree i think the best bands are the ones who combine a few things in a way that those things haven't been combined before and then inevitably sure. through the prism of their own unique experiences, where they're from and, you know, it's what true. their life was like. And that's where, you know, because on a piece of paper, Metallica is really just, you know, Motorhead plus Diamond Head with a little thin Lizzie, you yeah. know, and, and, and yet it became something other, something totally new and different. And, you know, I used to love seeing interviews with Vili from him because he would always say in interviews, like we're just you two with typo negative or, or, you yeah, know, we're right. just black Sabbath and you two or, and while he's correct, it's also, you know, they created something entirely different through their own perspective. Right. Because I mean, no art is like truly original everything, you know, even just to pick up a guitar, you're influenced by something. So that's going to come out in what you do somehow, you know? So it's yeah. like, Either your guitar tone or the what like the way you write riffs or or something is gonna be influenced by that. So it's kind of just the way you filter it through your own personal tastes and you know what other things that you're influenced by is is the way you kind of create your own sound and you know your you know Absolutely. just that I always find it w- weird when people kind of pretend like they don't have you know like that art is truly original too it's like i I, right. I fully am aware that everything is is influenced by something well i can say i can say as a journalist i can't tell you how many times i, I run it and, and they don't and, you know and to most musicians you know in their defense they don't know that they're doing something everyone else does but so many yeah. times the conversation is I don't really know how to categorize this. Like, I, I, you know, I don't really think we sound like anybody else. Like, we really kind of do our <laughs> own thing. And it's like, dude, right. I can name three or four reference points, and that's okay. You right. know, you're not – how often do you see a film where you're like, I don't – what is because, this to even? Be honest is with this you, even man, a movie? I mean, like, if you listen to, like, truly experimental music, mm-hmm. most of it is so bad because people don't have a reference point. <laughs> right, there's no context. You know, it's like – Yeah, there's no anchor. Even the listener – you know, the listener needs a reference point, too, where you're coming from because – for one, no one will ne- ever be able to find your band because if you can't reference anything else that it sounds like, no one will really know what to look for. And two, yeah. it's like, you know, people are just the way we're wired. We like a certain kind of thing. You know, it's like it doesn't have to be completely rip off, but it's like you need some sort of reference point, you know, like. And especially when we're um, we're so busy and we're inundated these days with so many options and there's so much media constantly crossing our fingertips in some form or another through some platform, you know, for me as, as an adult, like I know, for example, m- what my favorite type of metal is in the last couple of years. So as much as I don't like things that to be too reductive and as much as I appreciate the very unique stance everyone's coming from. Yeah. When I'm looking around for bands, I want to see somewhere in those first few sentences, like, 
this is blackened doom with yeah, exactly. elements of goth. And I'm like, that's what I like. <laughs> you know, and right. I'm be that much more likely to check it out because it, it gives you some sort of, you know, it, it initiates you to like what you're going to at least be prepared to listen to. You know, it's like totally. And I think imagery and art and everything is, has always been a key factor in that with a lot of the best bands that are out there and again I, that's that's something oh, I, I agree lavish praise on you for because that's always I, i've loved how much that's been part of your overall plan and approach that that's been well I, just as, as weird important. as this is i almost feel like i don't know if you're the same way but the, i almost feel like when you see when you see a record cover and then you listen to the music you kind of it kind of I don't know, like, for instance, to bring back to the Metallica thing, mm -hmm. like when I listen to like Ride the Lightning or something, it's just because of the reverb production and because the cover is blue, I just like think of it like as being like a really cold like record. You know what I mean? Like Dude, totally. just the production style. And it's like, and just I, I feel like the cover art example. kind of also factors into the way you hear things, you know? Yes. I mean, do, doesn't Injustice for All sound like that marble it does. with little cracks in it? Like, Yeah, it, I mean, it does. Like when I, I think of it hand in hand, you know, it's like. Yeah, and the Black Album is very much like they're stripped down, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's coiled. Great, and ready, it's it's ready funny to... how that works. Yeah, I, that's a, you know, I've never really thought about it specifically in those terms, but I think you're absolutely right. Especially, I think, when we were discovering bands at a time that the information about them was less readily accessible. So you totally. were, like you mentioned, scouring the liner notes to learn as much as you could. And, you know, I remember buying records based on bands that were thanked in other bands. Records. Oh, you know? dude, I, I would. So I would like look at see what bands were thanked. I would buy records based on that. And I'd also look to see what T-shirts they're wearing. Oh, dude, I, I bought, you know, Sam Hain, November Coming Fire. I bought. Oh, yeah, totally. I bought Morbid Tales. I bought a yep. lot of stuff because I saw T-shirt. You know, I got into the Dead Kennedys because David Ellison had a Dead Kennedy sticker yeah, on his base. Totally. You know. Yep, on that silver base. Yeah. I that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that reminds me too. You know, you mentioned the punk sort of element. That's that component that's part of the DNA and what you're doing. I think mm -hmm. it's important to distinguish punk being a kind of a broad term i like that what you've put in there is that sort of street punk like yeah. dirty right like you know we're making some vegan chili on a commune in like yeah, exactly. 1985 and uh yeah, it's you like know. that like that was kind of the era that I, I really got into that that era of punk where it's like you know like the crusty like they didn't even call it d-beat back then but like that more like discharge influenced like punk stuff yeah you know, the, the, the like, stuff that you would read about in like profound existence or exactly yeah. yeah exactly yeah i love it so yeah so talking about metallica specifically do you remember what your first record was and then something i love asking musicians what what your first riff was that you figured out um let's see so the first record was injustice for all got it on cassette nice. I, I remember going to the store and specifically <laughs> wanting that and um yeah, uh, man, first riff, definitely something off Kill 'Em All. Um, probably it was probably No Life to Leather, but that's like one of those records. Like I know like a, like a lot of the riffs off that record, so mm -hmm. I can't remember what, what the first one was. But it was probably No Life to Leather because I just love that 
the way that rips in, like when it just comes on. But gonna kick some um, ass tonight. Well, all right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Badass. So awesome. I mean, honestly, part of the inspiration for starting. I'm sorry, hit the lights. I, I said no life to life. I was, you know what I mean? I was, I was, <laughs> I was letting that. you roll with it because it was very demolicious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, my, my, my favorite song by Metallica is Mechanics. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, well, so one of the reasons why, uh, you know, Metallica can birth a Metallica-themed podcast is I find that within the metal and rock community, they're one of a handful of bands where there's always something to discuss. And I've found that even people that have abandoned the band at different points or never have anything positive to say anymore – whenever Metallica does something, it's yeah. always talked about, you know, and it's kind of, I've never been into professional sports, but I realized at some point in my life that my Metallica fandom is really like, that's how I understand sports fandom because it's like, Oh, you like the Chicago bears, but only during this particular <laughs> year with this coach exactly. and with it, you know, and, and you might, you might hate the quarterback on your favorite football team this season but you love your team and i'm like oh now i understand that because that's the way that you know people and i'm uh with few reservations i i celebrate the whole catalog as the saying goes yeah you know what's funny i'm like one of those rare people that like i actually like their new stuff and like man (laughs) you know it's a lot of people are just i see it all the time on the internet like you know fuck metallica after like injustice and stuff but I mean, I like I like Death Magnetic. I like the new stuff. It's like I, I think they're great. And that thing that I did, the edit thing, mm-hmm. it was a labor of love. Like I, I think there's some awesome riffs on there. And I was just basically almost cutting the fat because the record's really long. I was just kind of trying to almost take it filtered through like a Kill 'Em All era uh, edit. You know what I mean? To where I took like those riffs and just made it shorter songs, kind of just to make it like more, you know, just streamlined approach almost to it but that was a pure labor of love i actually really like their their new stuff and you could call, you could have called it the shortest song uh, if, you'll <laughs> for, if, awesome. you'll, if you'll forgive my dad joke <laughs> yeah and you know i always point this out too uh, you know when you talk to people that are like they haven't been good since the black album or they haven't been good since justice or they have uh, there are people who are older than us, cooler than us, who dropped off on Ride the Lightning because there was a ballot. Yeah. You know, so it's like every step of the way, you know, oh, yeah. losing yeah, yeah. a little like, and I, gaining a lot. I heard about lot, people saying you know? when, they, when they first heard the, the intro to Ride, Ride the Lightning, like with the acoustic thing, and they're like, yeah, they wimped out then. It's like, <laughs> Jesus, man. Like, <laughs> people are like that, I guess. Yeah. But it's, it always kills me. It's like it's mostly like – you know, if I look on Facebook, it's mostly like 20 year olds saying that Metallica like sucks after injustice. It's like, it's just, you know. Yeah. And people who, people who are into cooler hipper metal that would have never discovered that without Metallica yeah. as their gateway. And like, everyone's like, like, I think Lars is a good drummer and everyone else was like talking shit on him too. And I'm like, I think he's awesome. Like he's so influential and he's just like, his style is, is really cool. I think so. And it's, it's either. Okay. So, this is something that I always say about his drumming. And there's, again, there's, you know, maybe Igor Cavalera. There's like a couple other people you yeah. can say this about. You recognize, Dave Lombardo, certainly, you recognize their performance. You Absolutely. Know, and not, not even just their, their sounds and tones or whatever. Like, you know that that is that person playing drums. Yep. And that song, you know, there's a there's a Merciful Fate song from the 90s that Lars plays on. And you can, it's Lars. You know, you hear yeah. his 
personality coming through that. And that's such a rare thing for a drummer. And, and something else I, usually, I often give him credit for as well, particularly with the Black Album, you know, there are a lot of rock songs, let alone metal songs, that you can cover where if the riffs are there and the lyrics and the vocal phrasing is there, it's the song. And the drummer can really, as long as it's the right tempo, kind of do whatever. Yeah. And Metallica is one of those few bands where if you're covering Sad But True or Creeping Death, like, you got to do those fills. <laughs> or it's yeah. like, or it's not the song, you know? And that's that's such a testament I mean, to me of, of just the, the way drums, he accents, you know? like, he accents like the two with with symbols and stuff instead of the one. It's like that that alone is like really unique. Like he does the crash with the snare. You know, it's like it's so unique and cool. You know, it's like not many people play like that. It, it, you can you're right. You can as soon as you hear him play, you know it's him. I should have had you and on the it's just, first episode. It, it just fits the band. You know, it's like I couldn't imagine them having a different drummer. No, and also and, and this is to say nothing of the. You know, and again, having just had the engineer and mixer from Kill 'Em All on, on the podcast, you know, Lars was involved in the production of that record. You know, Damn. without any real experience in that, even like he was—he—he's the guy that the engineer remembers the most. He's the one he spent the most time <laughs> with. They played tennis together. Oh man! And Lars was was in there with his with his fingerprints on things, and uh, you know, you cannot separate his massive role behind the scenes. From no. that band, you know? I mean, he was the catalyst to get it going, you know? It's like, there would be no Metallica if it wasn't for him. There'd be like, think of that, like, how many people would even know who Diamond Head is without him? You know oh what I mean? Gosh, it's yeah. like, it's just crazy. And, and, and the fact that, the pull pay it forward there too, where the fact that, you know, guys from Diamond Head, or even someone like King Diamond, who's, who's had a, a good career of his own, these guys are paying their mortgages with Metallica money you sure. know and it's like i mean it's the ultimate uh in tribute and exposure for otherwise obscure bands and misfits? actual money for sure for I sure mean, how many people would know the misfits without metallica you know misfits definitely wouldn't be playing stadiums without metallica you know no, I mean? like i have a i have a misfits tattoo and that I, I i discovered the misfits and sam main through metallica There's i no discovered question. the misfits through metallica also yeah it's like it's like they're super influential by a lot of reasons not just their music, but also, you know, their, their musical taste, you know, they, they spread yeah. a lot of bands and they weren't shy about like what bands they like, which I think is really cool. You would think like a band like that, especially kind of like at the time doing like a new sound, like you would almost think that they'd be like hiding who they're like copying, yeah. you know, like yeah. it's, it's cool that they weren't ashamed to like say like, you know, these are the bands we like. Yeah. Their first show ever, there were more diamond head songs than Metallica songs, <laughs> which <laughs> so I think cool. is amazing. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's such a testament to it's what makes them such a legacy kind of band because you know yeah. David Ellison when when he was on the podcast he he said I think quite astutely that they're all branches from the Metallica tree like you can take yeah pretty much every important metal band that came afterwards and trace some sort of roots or lineage or direct connection like as in the case of Megadeth obviously to Metallica and it's like that's crazy huh. That speaks volumes, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I should have had you on the very first episode. I love the I love the pro Lars drumming because that's, you know. Oh, I love Lars's drumming, man. I, it bothers me when people are like, "Should have been Lars." I hate that. I was just about to bring up the same thing because I that, that bothers me. I hate that. Okay, so because I am such a Metallica fan, people who know me really well and people who know me casually, whenever there's any sort of Metallica meme, I'm it's going to be texted to me, right? And yeah. 
I've been tagged into should have been Lars a couple of times, like on Instagram and stuff like that. And I always reply with a thumbs down or like some kind of like, I'm yeah. always just like, no, th fuck this. Like, aside from the fact that it's gross. Shouldn't have been anyone. <laughs> exactly. But... Exactly. That the, the number one, it's gross and it's not funny. Yeah. And you're not Anthony Jeselnik. You aren't talented at making dark humor. Exactly. Yeah, that's not even clever. You know, it's like. It's not even clever. And, and, and also, and this is something that comes up with me all often also you know when people are like oh if cliff was still here they never would have done load it's like are you kidding me they would have done load like four albums earlier right you know cliff had bell bottoms and listened to leonard skinner and I, you know, yeah when, he and he was just yeah exactly yeah when <laughs> when uh when when michael lago who, who signed the band to electra was on the show he said that you know the first time he had the band in the office and they're getting like all their you know free promo swag from the label and things mm-hmm all Cliff wanted were Simon and Garfunkel records. That's so cool. <laughs> and it wasn't I ironic, you know? Yeah, so it's like he would have, you know, he would have been pushing for more melody and more Thin Lizzy and more a lot and of the things. And that's the reason that, why you know. Cliff was so good, too. It's like he was just a music fan, you know? He wasn't just taking from, you know, the hard rock world, you know? He's like, that That makes a better musician, too. It's like, again, taking, like, all your influences, putting them in a blender and, out comes you you know that's that's yeah. that's really cool like it you know all those bass lines wouldn't sound the same without his you know influences and stuff i think that's cool like i'm a huge music fan too and like i i like when it always it's always weird to me when like a lot of people are just into one style of music it's like it's weird <laughs> yeah it, it's it's like imagine the only movies you watch are romantic comedies Right, right, you know, exactly. Like, like, it's one thing to have a favorite genre, but, like, right. you're only going to watch that genre? Like, that's insane. Yeah, it's, like, so limiting. It's, like... Yeah. And especially if you're making movies, if you've only... If, imagine if you've only ever seen a horror horror films, and you're making exactly. a horror film, how boring that would be. Exactly. It would just be a... a probably be a copy of every... of your top five favorite horror movies, you know? <laughs> yeah, with absolutely nothing new to say. It's, like, you don't own. like the way this one's at least filmed. You might not like the story, but... You don't like anything from this other movie, like the, you know, the way it's shot or the location or any of that. Like, yeah, it's so weird. So yeah, so let, let's dig into your hardwired re-edit or redo or whatever you want to call it. First of all, yeah, it is clearly a labor of love because you don't spend that much time doing something because you hate it. Yeah. What inspired that? How did that? How did that happen? Basically, what was the story behind that? That was kind of one of those things where the record came out. Um, you know, the song Hardwired was like whatever, the single, whatever, before it came out. And um, I was really excited. I, I, I'd really dug that song and I was excited to see what else was on the on the record, you know, and got the record and was listening to it. And I really dug it. I just found myself, I guess, maybe because my attention span is too short or something. But, you know, it's a double CD. It's pretty long and um, so many awesome riffs that I was like this would be really cool if you could just edit it down a little bit and just get to the more like the, the bare bones of it and just kind of keep having you hit over the head with cool riffs. So that was kind of one of those things where I just did it for my own personal taste, you know, kind of just for fun. And then, um, I, I, I think I, I forget how it actually happened, but I, I put it on YouTube and I think maybe I told some friends about it and then, Kim Kelly got word of it and she posted it on like, I forget where, maybe metal sucks or something like that. And yeah, it started getting some coverage and you know, then I got a copyright strike and I had to take it down. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but before then it was pretty cool because people were digging it. You know, it's like, I think a lot of people 
um, it was cool actually to see because like there was parts where I would in the comments section people were like, "Oh, you missed this really cool riff," or exactly. like you know stuff like that. Or like I saw the Metallica fans coming out, and I thought that was pretty awesome because that's like, what's great about it. Because you're not saying this should replace what's there. It's more here's right. a, here's a companion that's a to check out and debate and listen to. And you know I think it's the same as uh, you know when you go online and you see people taking the star Wars prequels and editing it down to like, sure. A much better it's like hour and 45 minute. Like, yeah. You're not saying it, you know, and what I like about those, cause I've watched a few of those and some, they're varying degrees of quality. Some are good. Some are bad, but you yeah. always see in the comments like, Oh man, you cut, you, you should have left in this part or, you right. know, or, or you shouldn't have put this part in there. That part's kind of, and totally. that's, that's the fun of it, you know, because it starts like a conversation between mutual fans. Yes. You know, it's not like, it's not like a diss to the record. It's actually a, a compliment to the record because I liked it enough to be like, this is this is the way I would envision it. Like if if basically if I did this record, this is how I would do it. You know, like basically yeah. like, uh, and it, it's just a uh, like a companion to the actual record. It's not like to replace it or anything like that. So it reminds me of uh, one of my favorite scenes actually in some kind of monster where Lars is talking about his art collection and his love of art and what what could be a very pretentious rich guy thing to be into. I yeah. think, I think the movie really um, sheds, you know, it, it's a very, it has a, a moment where it's a great window into the art world that a lot of us blue collar totally. thrash metal dudes wouldn't understand and seeing him, seeing how emotional he got selling that collection, you know, uh, yeah. but, but anyway, there's a really great scene where he's pointing at one of his pieces and he's going, you know, one of the things I like thinking about looking at a piece like this is, when did the artist decide it was finished? You know, or right. which, which brush stroke was like, okay, that's the one because you could keep painting, you could, or you could have stopped earlier. Yeah. And I think that that applies to records. And so, totally. a project like yours is basically saying, like, what if they kept going into this, or what if they had stopped right. here, or what if they had. Uh, now, I I also liken it to when people take the user illusion records or even load and reload. And, you know, make a playlist that's like, okay, instead of two records, what if this was one record? I always thought about doing that for Use Your Illusion because I really like those records too. And I always thought if you could just take the best of the best for those two and just make one record, it would be, yeah, you know, we, another appetite or something. Like it, it would just be an awesome record. I mean, I, I, I like both of those records, but there is a couple things that are filler to me on there. Nobody, cool nobody, needs, just, nobody needs my world. And, no. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, I forgot and, about that. Like the rap song. Or yeah, and get, getting the which I believe Axel did like after the fact, and it was a surprise to the rest of the band. <laughs> but and, yeah, the and Chinese then, democracy stuff early yeah, exactly. in his career on that. <laughs> uh, and also, getting a ring could have been a B side on it. Oh yeah. You know, your import. Yeah, exa single. I agree. It's fun. It's interesting, but it doesn't. You know, especially especially with the it, it's sort of like some rap records where. The references are so, you know, to listen to it in 2019, and it's like, yeah, you're really, totally. sti you're really sticking it to Bob Guccione Jr. <laughs> yeah, you're like, like you listen to like The Chronic or something like that, and you're exactly. like <laughs> talking shit on things, and you're like, yeah, I don't even think that's like a thing anymore. You yeah. know, just well, like, Jer dated, Jer but Jerry and Easy are both dead, but okay, four songs right. about them. Sure. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's it's it speaks volumes of fandom in general and, and love and passion and, and how much this kind of art, you know, can inspire other artists to want to monkey around with it. I think one of the things about Hardwired that I really appreciated uh, more, more so than Death Magnetic, which I also really loved, was that it brought back 
some of those black album and load era vocal harmonies. So yeah. you have kind of the death magnetic thrashy throwback, more aggressive stuff with some of the, I guess, smarts, melodic smarts of the nineties. Yeah. And I just, I love, I love, it, it sounds like a record that incorporates every era of the band. And that's what I like. That That's what I like the most about it. It kind of, just sounds like a culmination of everything that they've done in one record, which I think is cool. Yeah, and it was it was a grower for me too because I liked it right from the beginning, and because it is so long, like you mentioned, you know, saying anger is really long, but that's like a slog to get through. Yeah. Whereas hardwired, you know, I just kept going back and back and back and back, and then finding new things to love about different songs at every step of the way. Totally. I mean, even with saying anger, I'm not a like that's one metallic record I really. I, I just can't get into. I've tried and I just can't, but I still respect them for doing it because I know how hard it is to basically be like, we're just going to do what we want to do, especially when you're in a position like that, when you're like, their level of success is so much higher than anybody else's. It's like all eyes are on them to see what their next record is going to be. So I have nothing but respect for them to be like, screw it. We're going to do what we want, regardless of the outcome, which I think, I mean, I respect them for that. And such a massive organization of people depending on your art at yeah. that point. You know? Yeah, employees and employees and you know, just... That's yeah, wild. And the pressure yeah. For that. Yeah, I, I, I've said it many times, but I appreciate that that record exists for the role that it played in the band's arc and in, you know, taking them through this turbulent time and so on. But yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't listen to it. <laughs> yeah. But when, yeah. you know, but when they break out frantic or, you know, some yeah. stuff live, I'm like, yeah, this is cool. But yeah, it's certainly not my favorite. So this uh, brings us, uh, it dovetails nicely with the story of Toxic Holocaust. And obviously, it, you know, beginning as a one-man band and then going through various permutations over the last, as you pointed out, 20 years, which is wild. And, you know, coming back now after what, in, in some in some circles, is considered a long absence, right? Depends yeah, on how you look at it. Absolutely. To be sort of rebirthing how it all began. Uh, tell me about that and sort of how it, you know, this this particular moment and this particular record and how it, what sure. it incorporates about the past and what's new about it and, and all that. So basically, um, around the time of the last record's release, I was kind of in the process. I was living in Los Angeles, um, and I've lived in Portland for about 12 years, but I, I, I moved to Los Angeles for a year, and that was right about the time the record was finishing up, like just about to come out. And I decided to move back to Portland. Um, I decided to start doing audio work for other bands, like engineering, like mixing, mastering, mm -hmm. stuff like that. And... Uh, you know, because I, I, I kind of wanted to have something to do when I wasn't on tour and that kind of thing. Well, what the good thing about it was it, it started really taking off. And it was cool to actually start, you know, my own business, basically. And because of that, there was the hiatus between the two records became longer and longer because I was in the process of building this new business up. And I kind of wanted to have something to that I could do, you know, even maybe when I'm like older and can't tour, you know, I wanted that like, of course, almost like that career, you know, to have for a long time. 
So that was the the process of kind of what took so long in between the two records was building up that business. But also between that time, like, you know, I was focusing on songwriting and and things like that. And I I did a few uh, synth records, some soundtrack work, like that kind of stuff, too. So kind of just growing my knowledge of music in general during that time. So on things and so around the time of this new record, like starting to write and stuff like that, the it's definitely more expansive than my other records, I think for just songwriting and stuff, but there's really nothing that will alienate the toxic fan base. You know, I kind of wanted to be aware of that too. I didn't want to throw like a huge curveball at everyone either. You know, I wanted to maintain the sound and stay true to the sound, but, um, so it's kind of cool. I kind of expanded on what I've always been doing. I didn't want to ma- remake the last record that I did again. You know, I wanted to do something new. And with like learning like, you know, more about engineering and things like that, I decided it would be cool because it's the 20th anniversary to kind of go back to the roots. So I decided to record it all myself, re- decided to play drums on it like I did on the first two records so it's kind of cool it's like taking all of the stuff I learned in those 20 years and doing it again fast forwarded you know and it's just it was a cool experiment and I'm, I'm really excited to hear what people think about the new record I'm, I'm really proud of it almost like what we we're talking about with hardwired <laughs> where you've been able yeah, to totally. in- incorporate that uh, what it was all about in the very beginning with everything you've learned and incorporated along the way And in a way that stays true to the identity of what the band is, but also keeps you interested and inspired and not just repeating yourself. A hundred percent, man. It's like, I I'm always aware of that where, you know, I, I, I realize that, you know, my fans are what got me to where I am now. And I never want to do stuff that is so alienating to them, but I also don't want to, pander to them only either you know i like i hope they're along for the ride with me mm-hmm. you know where i can grow still too so it's kind of kind of what i was trying to do with with this new one is you know bridge that gap between get, going in a new direction but also bringing along the, the fans that got me here to begin with yeah I, and i mean could you even imagine in 1999 that you would be talking about a new toxic record in 2019 (laughs) no 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 way man like not at all it's unbelievable to think about started the band when i was 17 and still doing it it's nuts yeah uh, it's amazing yeah so what would you say are some things that are you know if you had to describe what the most you kind of uniquely identifying components are to the band sound that you have to make sure are in there and then what are some of those areas that you're that you're exploring whether it's the kind of cinematic stuff from the scores you were doing and or you know what how would you kind of best describe what the key ingredients are i would say the key ingredients are i would say first and foremost would be like the hooks you know what i mean like the 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 actual choruses like which is kind of something that not a lot of metal bands really do you know mm-hmm. it's it's that's I think a lot it comes from the punk aspect of it where they punk stuff is you know very like chorus based and um so that's that's a very key ingredient I think um you know the guitar riffing and and tone I think is a is a 
pretty big component too. I think a lot of people when I play guitar can tell it's me just by the way, like my friend Scotty from that does Tancrans records. He's like, always says like, that's definitely a Joel riff, you know, cause it, <laughs> it's just, I have like a style, you know, of like the way I play, I guess, you know, and that, that's a, a key ingredient too. And the things that are a little different this time around, I just kind of expanded on arrangements and more, I don't know, just kind of, it takes you on a little bit more of a journey instead of like a more like in and out, like two minute long punk song. It kind of takes you on a little bit more of a journey this time around, but all of the elements are still there. It's just kind of expanded upon that way where the arrangements are a little bit more, a little, little bigger arrangement kind of thing and things like that. But nothing too crazy. <laughs> yeah. No, like, you know, operatic. There's no, going there's, on there's no country song on the album. No, no country song. Nothing like that. <laughs> What would you say if, if there were a kind of singular statement, you know, in, in terms of, you know, when you look at a band's cataloging, you can go, this was the this record and this was the this record. You know, if, if you could, obviously it's more than a sentence, but if, if there's any kind of theme you could identify or like a kind of, you know, where does it fit in the as far as a chapter and what will eventually be the, the book of Toxic Holocaust? Oh, that's tough. Um... I would almost say that this is kind of like the new chapter in a way where it's the 20 year mark. You know, it's like basically, yeah, it's like toxic 2.0 or something like that, mm. where I feel like I want to continue doing records the way I did this one, mm -hmm. where it was really laid back. It was, you know, I got to play everything on it. I had a blast. I kind of forgot how fun it was doing a record like that again. Just, you know, like kind of the pressure is off kind of thing. Like, um, so I would, you know, the, thematically, the, the record is very based in like dystopian future, futuristic kind of, you know, technology takeover type thing. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, oh man, one, one word to, or one sentence to describe this. I, I don't really know, man. I would just say maybe like toxic 2.0 kind of thing where it's yeah. the, you know, the next, chapter a technological reboot with some analog that's a good one roots <laughs> yeah yeah it's like terminator 2 <laughs> <laughs> well dude this is awesome man yeah this is super fun and i'm i'm glad i uh i'm glad i just straight up asked you rather than waiting and yeah dude yeah if you ever want to um you know do this again and talk about metallica stuff well just let me know i'm, I'm always yeah. down to talk about that so. i think you would be our first return guest because i bet there's a lot more metallica we could talk yeah, absolutely, man. I just got, I just got, I, I have some of those box sets that they re released, mm -hmm. those, uh, those vinyl box sets, but oh, I yeah. finally found the Kill 'Em All one. I, for some reason, I couldn't find that one, but I finally found it. So, you know, and we, stoked. I'm sure you saw the headlines flying around, but uh, we almost got a No Life Till Leather box. Oh man, which would have been amazing. I missed that. I missed that cassette. I, so I, did I'm I. So bummed. I'm kicking myself that I didn't get that. Me too. That thing looks so cool. Yeah. So they were. They were. They had announced it and it was in the works, and then it, it fell apart due to some of the same oh, issues. Oh yeah, from that's the right. I yeah. forgot about that because something to do with Dave Mustaine, right? Yeah, and it, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, for better or worse, I can see both sides of the argument. And yeah. Obviously, you know, I'm a huge fan of both bands, and uh, yeah, me too. It, it, yeah, I guess what it boiled down to from, and 
you know, Lars and James haven't really addressed it in anything more than very broad terms without even mentioning Dave by name. But what Dave has said in different interviews and tweets and things was that, you know, Lars wants to have a songwriting credit on songs that Dave says he wrote wholly from top to bottom, uh, you know, oh, sure. I, which I assume would be mechanics and probably jump in the fire and yeah, or, or songs where that he, where he did all the music and arranging and, and James did the lyrics or whatever. But I, I you know, and, and basically it's, his reasoning was sounded like, you know, they put the songwriting credits however they wanted to on Kill 'em All because I wasn't around. But if we're going to like do this one together, I want it to be I see. correct. And I, and I understand that. On the flip side, I also understand the songwriting in general and publishing and copyright and how all that stuff fl- plays out and gets figured out is so convoluted and subjective yep. you know there's the percentages there's, and all that stuff yeah it's, so it's really i mean some bands you know regardless of who wrote what will just split it four ways or five ways just right. to avoid any arguments and then there's other bands where you might have somebody who's the only songwriter credited despite the fact that someone else in the band you know contributed in this way or that way or sure made this suggestion and so it's you know it's subjective and that's where i kind of see both sides and i also understand that they're just Lars just isn't going to have a Metallica song out there that doesn't have his name on it. Right. And I understand and that. To be you fair, know. you know, you know how Lars is. You see those like, you know, in the studio for Death Magnetic and stuff. You see how he is. I mean, he he definitely plays a part in stuff. Like, oh yeah. Even if it's just arrangement stuff, like he's definitely like, we should do this uh, like three times, or we should do this five times. Or yeah, I mean, you know, like, you know, the riff to Inner Sandman, one of the most famous riffs of all time, like Smoke yep. on the Water for a Generation, that's a Kirk riff that was arranged by Lars. <laughs> right. He was like, you know, take the tail off and do this part, This, yeah. like repeat that part a couple times, and then put the tail at the end. And it's like, that's kind of like, he didn't like sit down with the guitar and write the riff, but that still was that riff because of his input also. Yeah. So you don't, you know, who knows who was in the you know, when they're all in the garage and Ron McGovney's living room or whatever, like, yeah, you know, how how things. So, again, yeah, I understand both sides of it. And it's just a shame that they couldn't come to some sort of agreement to get a cool box out of that out. But, you know, yeah. perhaps, perhaps yeah, they will. Really cool. and, it, and it's, you know, it's one of those things like I know they're all they're all friends. It's not, a, you know, it's not any part of a feud or anything. It's just. It's stuff. It's stuff that we have a little bit more of a window into because those bands are so big and because we have social media and things nowadays. But it happens. Right. It happens in every band. <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. Like when they were doing them all, it was like a handshake deal. But now right. these bands are worth millions. You know, it's like mm-hmm. it's a lot more money at, at, at stake. You know, you want to make sure you do it right when the credits are coming out. Yeah, and if you compromise, if on the Metallica side for the no life to leather box set do you then open yourself up to a liability for that's a good point decades of your first record yeah so right that's a good point i guess i think dave even has credits on ride the lightning for some he stuff does. doesn't he like some yeah, yeah so for, uh call of cthulhu which was originally yeah, called yeah hell freezes over and they it was an instrumental that they played and with dave and they added a big section to it which he's actually complimented and yeah the song ride the lightning has some Dave right. in there and I, there's some debate about whether or not I think it's Leper Messiah has some mustaine parts which mm. were uncredited but I think he challenged and got paid for I don't really know the full story but but yeah That's I mean his, his material was definitely still persisting all the way through his Crazy. fingerprints yeah and we think about the short time he was in the band and how 
how important he was to its sound, you know, versus a lot of other bands where, like, you might have had somebody in a band for 15 years that didn't really contribute much to the sound. Right. So, pretty yeah. cool. It is uh, cool. Well, Joel, well, thanks you, so much. Yeah, uh, great talking to you as well. And um, you'll appreciate this. I did. A, I got hired to um, – a friend of mine who runs the merch division at Warner flew me out to New York a year or two ago to moderate a panel that was him and Green Day's manager that was just oh, for cool. the staff at Warner Brothers, like, talking about their merch division. It, all very, like, inside baseball nerdy stuff. But uh -huh. I he – I had him, you know, they covered my flight in my hotel room, and then they paid me with Metallica box sets. <laughs> oh, dude, that's awesome. <laughs> I was like, don't worry about my rate. Uh, I want all those yeah. box sets. And that's like that's like printing money because those are going up, man. I was like, I'm, I'm happy I found the Kelmall one because like, the ones I was like seeing on Discogs, like, they were going up in price. And I'm like, I better find this soon. Yeah, it's crazy, right? I mean, and they're and they're so good. They're so lovingly put together. And that's another they're great. They testament sound to Lars because he's the he's the archivist. He's the guy who saves all that stuff. And oh, cool. You know, and, and uh, has a big big hand in putting those together. And it under and he's a, a fan where he understands why we yeah. love that shit because <laughs> he loves Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I'm sure he wants the Tigers of Pantang collector's box that will never come out. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll buy that too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Joel, have a good cool. rest of your day, and I uh, look forward to talking to you again sometime. You too, man. All, All right, right take it easy. Cheers. So there you have it, my conversation with Joel Grind of Toxic Holocaust. Be sure to check out Primal Future 2019, the first Toxic Holocaust record in six years, celebrating the band's 20th anniversary. Speakingdestroy.com is the place to keep up with the podcast, and you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey, on Instagram at SuperheroHQ, and you can find me on Facebook as well. Speaking Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. If you would be so kind, please leave a five-star rating and a nice little review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. As always, you guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downey. <laughs>